this is where intuition and gut feel comes in because it's you can look at all of the different states of the world and have an intuition about that but until you actually are able to import export that to a situation where everything has changed all of the you're you're changing multiple parameters at once um that takes a very different type of planning a different type of mindset different mental models different schemas different prototypes all those kind of things you're listening to the breakdown with me chris clearfield the breakdown is a podcast where we connect with business owners and experts to hear their perspectives on this crazy complex world I'm your host and fellow learner, and I'm glad you're here. Hey, before we get started, I wanted to share something with you that I'm really excited about. Every week, I offer three free coaching sessions where I help leaders focus on the complexity and messiness that we all deal with or don't deal with, as the case may be. I've done this kind of work in corporate environments for years, but recently I've started working directly with business owners. Most of my clients run companies generating six to seven figures of revenue, but they want to do more and they want to do it while having a fuller and better life too. They also want to have more impact. They want to feel like they are stepping towards their purpose in the world. What makes my clients great is that they're not afraid of doing the personal work, the hard work that's needed to make a quantum leap in their business, becoming both more successful and more at ease along the way. When we want to change something, most of us use willpower to try to push on it. We try to make more calls, we try to network more, or we try to eat better, exercise more. But in my experience, the key isn't to push harder, but to understand why we're holding ourselves back in the first place. Once we do, once we have that understanding, our resistance dissipates and the road ahead is clear and easy for us to walk. Now, the value of an outsider's perspective in this can't be underestimated, and it's one of the things I love about the work I get to do. Many times that perspective, even just a well-placed question, can be the thing that helps us shift from being stuck in the same old routines to doubling, tripling, or even 10xing our productivity, commitment to goals, our happiness, and our impact on the world. This sounds like something you're interested in. If this sounds like you, my question for you is, are you ready to make the leap? To find out more and to sign up for one of these free sessions, which are first come, first serve, go to chrisclearfield.com slash make the leap. That's all one word, make the leap. Today I'm speaking with Laura Huang. Laura is a professor at Harvard Business School who studies how people make decisions in environments without a lot of data. We talk about her new book, Edge, unique aspects of the venture capital model and how VCs have to make decisions and why small firms might actually have an advantage in responding to a crisis like COVID-19 compared with big firms. We also talk a little bit about my own journey as a business owner and how I've been focusing and shifting my practice. And I hope you'll enjoy our conversation. Um, I'm so excited that we're chatting. Thank you for, for being willing. Oh, sure. I mean, I feel like I actually feel like I've seen you a lot recently because I was, I know. Uh, well, because I saw you at that thing that, um, that Misha was doing. And then I also saw you, I wasn't able to watch your whole thing, but I did catch one glimpse of you at the Latin, um, the, um, the little like thing that they put together. I got some of the first day you were on the second day, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, and I, and I got a little bit of the second day and then just a tiny bit of the third day. So I don't know. How did it go? It was awesome. Oh, good. Um, it was a lot of fun. And um, I, for me, who 
I feel like often has a relatively like formal approach to this kind of thing to like uh -huh. the act of speaking and stuff like that. Um, it was great because I just got to be sort of, I had some ideas, I had some thoughts, but I just got to be in conversation with Misha. And yeah, yeah. as you know, being in conversation with Misha is really fun. Yeah, that's great. And he is really a, he is really skilled at kind of drawing things out in a way that I think is really, um, yeah, just really compelling and, and admirable. And so it was just really, it felt really, really fun. It must have been tiring for him because he was on for like- Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> five hours a day yes. right like, for three days yeah, yeah and then they did an after party the next day that he also ran um, yeah he well he did the after party each night every night there was like some thing that um which i wasn't able to do but i was like wow that's like a big commitment he must like david lavin owes him a favor totally totally <laughs> so yeah <laughs> yeah but anyway, so thanks for inviting me on this. So you're starting a podcast. How exciting. I am. You know, um, why don't you say who you are, Laura? Oh, yeah. I know. I was like, <laughs> like, do you want, is this all, is this part of it? Or do you want me to like, I, I feel like I'm derailing us. Sorry. I'm, I'm good at derailing <laughs> conversations. Um, yeah. So um, I'm Laura Huang. I'm a professor at Harvard Business School. Um, I'm the author of Edge, Turning Adversity into Advantage, and have been studying for the last decade or so um, disadvantaged, people who are underestimated, inequality, uh, the systems that sort of enable it, and how from the inside out, we can also be changing um, the ways that things operate, and how we can turn adversity and obstacles and stereotypes and flip them around so that we can empower ourselves to create our own advantages and our own edge. Awesome. I love it. That's perfect. Um, and that leads to why how you and I know each other because we're both represented by uh, the the Lavin Agency, which was started by David Lavin, who was um, a also a podcast guest, not because he is um, not because you I mean, had to have him, but <laughs> totally, totally. <laughs> he's really a, have... <laughs> he is a totally fascinating and quirky guy, and has built this business around this. Um, totally fascinating and, and quirky niche, um, which is, you know, representing kind of intellectual talent in in this sort of quirky world that used to exist and that may or may not exist going forward in terms of people having, you know, conferences at scale and having speakers and, and things like this. And that's where you and I met. Um, we met at at the kind of the, the event that the Lavin Agency runs for its own speakers, which is, it's a pretty pretty fun um, thing. And for me, actually, it's been life-changing in a bunch of different ways. It's given me um, mentors. It's given me um, very, like new perspectives on things that I had never thought about before, um, brought by people who are very thoughtful and respectful and, um, yeah, but also kind of challenging what my status quo view was of. Absolutely, of I feel like he really. I feel like they they've done a really great job at putting together this group of quirky and quirky. Yes. totally different. I mean, we're all so different, and yet, and we all have such different perspectives and backgrounds and outlooks, and yet somehow when we come together, that's part of the beauty of it is that we, yes. we, we all sort of exchange ideas 
in a respectful and quirky and thoughtful sort of way so that it really is additive. And um, I think that's absolutely right, that there's so many perspectives of that that I never would have gotten otherwise. I mean, I remember I was I was giving some I, I was giving some remarks or something and someone said something like, yeah, and that's it's it's really what you're thinking is really what you're saying is really similar to what Lizzo says in her her song, whatever, whatever. And I was like, Yes. And she was like, You don't know who Lizzo is? And I'm like, no. And she's like, totally. no, and so all of a sudden I'm opened up into this whole new world where I'm like, oh my gosh, what I'm saying at Harvard Business School is the same thing that Lizzo is saying in her song lyrics. And there was this like meshing of ideas and it was just a really cool sort of thing. And I think it's, it's pretty uh, representative of what I'm trying to do in this space, which is create a space for, um, I think, you know, interested, curious people, particularly those that run and, you know, run their own businesses to connect not only with the stories of other business owners who have this, you know, this kind of, as you know, because a lot of the research you do is sort of very naturalistic. It's very out in the world with people making real decisions. Um, and then kind of combining that piece with people like you who really dig into these questions, these deep questions of how the world works that I think the more we can reflect on and the more we can create a space for the 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 more people can take those insights and and run with it so in a sense i feel like that's the space that i am creating here um with a a variety of kind of again like a a, a quirky menagerie of yeah of people yeah that's great and i think that's how the real world is and and a yes. lot of small and medium business size like a lot of companies like are also you have that within large corporations like this menagerie of of people who um are are expected to look in the same direction towards the same goal, but yet have all of these different ways that they're trying to process this. And then you also yes. have it in small organizations where small organizations, even though you may be in a small organization, you're still always dealing with customers and suppliers and investors and partners and all of these, the, these sort of things that go into it. So I think it's, it's something that we're increasingly realizing, um, not just because of different ways that we're interconnected, but also just in terms of the, um, the, like, as we expand our minds and as we learn more and more, we sort of see that, like, in turn, there's actually a lot, even more that we haven't really explored, so. Totally. So one of the things, your, your work, some of it is grounded in work you've done with angel investors yeah. and um, so sort of pre-VC stage of taking money. And I'm just going to, one of the things you argue is that, and I think what, or one of the kind of precepts you start with is that the goal of most angel investors is to find a home run. They don't, they don't want, they don't want, if nine out of 10 of their investments succeed, they're actually doing the wrong thing. Cause what they're looking for is they're looking for those things that kind of knock it out of the park. And they are also in this really information poor environment. You know, they are, they have to make bets by their very nature. They have to make bets on companies with products that might be unproven um, with, you know, markets that might not even exist yet or very like huge degrees of uncertainty around whether an entrepreneur will even be able to move into a market. But the other thing that they have data about is the entrepreneurs themselves. So um, they're kind of 
profile, their background, how they're embedded in the social network. Um, also, as you point out and, and write about, their kind of race and, I don't know if you write about class explicitly, but their race and gender. Mm -hmm. um, and so one of the things that I think is really interesting is when you, when you, you did this, you wrote this paper that came out in the Administrative Science Quarterly, which some listeners might know, but a lot probably don't. Um, it's the sort of like preeminent kind of social science journal, organizational um, behavior journal. And one of the things you write about is the kind of development of intuition that these um, VCs, or sorry, these angel investors kind of develop. And I think one of the striking things to me was that the kind of their perspective on the kind of personality of the entrepreneur is not only important, but also predictive. Um, and the thing you were just talking about in terms of the way entrepreneurs have to deal with different stakeholders might be part of that. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I think, so what, there's, there's a couple of different dimensions, really, when you look at the entrepreneurship ecosystem. One is that when you look at decision-making, decision-making has been studied for a really, really long time, but this is a very distinct decision context where it's not just about risk and uncertainty, but in fact, it's about extreme uncertainty and, the, and there aren't probabilistic outcomes. And so what happens is that the we've been trained we've been we've been um for our entire lives we've made decisions in a certain way and when we import that to a different context there's almost this situational arrogance that happens where we think we've made decisions and they've been really good decisions and now let's try and make different types of decisions in the same way and so that's sort of the crux of what we're looking at in the entrepreneurship ecosystem what i mean by that is that we tend to look for hard data. We tend to look for, even if we do have an intuition about something, we try and either post hoc rationalize that through data, or we try and explain that or make sense of it through data to sort of prove our original thesis. In this context, the hard data are not really hard, right? It's hopes and dreams and guesses, even though they're numbers and they're financials, right. what they really are, are their their projections or their assumptions, or they're just what we sort of expect or say that we expect to sort of happen. And so subconsciously and intuitively, investors know this. They know that even though they have this, all of this, these financial, this financial information, things that comes in written form, business plans, it doesn't actually give them anything rational to go on. And so instead they need to rely on more soft data and that actually becomes even more important. So they have to rely on things like their perceptions of an entrepreneur and how trustworthy he or she might be or how committed or how passionate or how likable or how arrogant or all of these different factors that in other scenarios are the biased factors. But here right. they have to make sense of it because what's actually biased is those numbers and those projections and what's said right. in those business plans. And so that's kind of what's, what's happening. Now, the second stage of this is that when you do rely on things like how trustworthy you think someone is or how passionate you think someone is, there allows what is allowed to creep in. That becomes a cover 
for things like discrimination or bias based on someone's gender or race or class or religion or sexual orientation. All of these sorts of things become um, factors. And so there's this paradox between how do you use your intuition and how do you not be biased by your intuition? And that's sort of what I've been trying to uncover. And how do individuals hone their ability to, because it's really about how do you hone your ability to know when you should in any context, yes. regardless of whether it's entrepreneurship or not, how do you hone your ability to know when you should be using the hard data and be analytical versus when you should, and, and, and in those cases, sort of throw out your gut feel. And in what context should you actually rely on your intuition and gut feel and throw away the supposed data and hard analytical stuff? I think that one of my, I was just writing about this this week, but one of my favorite parts about working on Meltdown was we have a chapter on intuition tools for decision-making and the, the idea of the wicked environment, which is a term that I think Robin Hogarth um, coined, although it might've been somebody else. But like if you've if you've followed the kind of behavioral economics revolution, if you've read you know Kahneman and Tversky, or if you've read just thinking fast and slow, you kind of can come away with this idea that humans are sort of bad at thinking. And I think what's interesting and in, and in what you were just saying is that humans do have these predictable biases. We do have this kind of predictable irrationality, but in some environments, we also develop this really amazing ability to pick up on subconscious cues, um, to you know, process based on factors we don't even know we're picking up and can't articulate to people in, unless we're questioned about it in a very specific way and make really good decisions about that. Um, yeah, I just, I think that's super interesting. Yeah, because what happens is if you, if you change even just one variable, right, you change the industry that you're operating in, or you change the mix of people that you're interacting with, or you change the product that you're, that, that the focal product, everything sort of changes. There's going to be a different set of perceptions, a different set of assumptions, a different set of attributions that are made based on that. So for example, if you are in, if you are in something that's a really high tech industry um, and you're an entrepreneur operating in that industry, um, there's going to be certain perceptions made about you and your background, based on your background, your education, the way you look, the way you act, the way you communicate, all those sorts of things. But you take, you, you now take that same person and you put them in retail or you put them in hospitality or you put them in entertainment. And there's going to be a different set of ways that that person is going to be perceived and attributed and assumptions right. that are made about that person. And so it's, what I talk a lot about in, in, in the book and as, as well as in my research is that part of what individuals need to do in order to gain an edge is to be able to hone that ability to know what going back to really what are your basic goods? What are the basic superpowers that you have? What are those basic things that you have so that you can understand now based on that? 
if I'm in technology versus high tech versus if I'm in retail versus I'm in, and that's just one of those variables. Industry is just one of those variables, but you need to go back to those roots in order to be able to. So I always say, I say to my students all the time, in order to grow, grow you have to prune. Right. And we don't always understand. Yeah. We think growth is about getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But if you think about a tree, like that tree can only grow tall is if you're pruning and you're taking things away. And so anytime you're putting yourself in a different situation, you can't just import what all of that growth that you had. You need to go back and prune so that you're in it because you're in a different environment. You have different lighting and different sunlight and different environmental conditions. And so you really need to think about that in order to kind of get at what you're, what you're, what you're speaking about. And I think, um, you know, for, for us people, right, we all have gone through this path that um, we're, we were once children. We were once children that were dependent yeah. on our parents and in a very specific environment, in a very specific school and institutional environment. And we learn things in that environment. And those things are super adaptive for that environment. But generally speaking, that does not describe the environment that we inhabit as adults. Yeah, I mean, trees can't move, but that's what, but they can be uprooted and replanted in different places or plants right. can, right? And so it's, it's a matter of like, you need to grow where you're planted, right? You can't just uproot yourself and put yourself some, in some other context that other people have already excelled in or other people already have this distinct advantage in. You need to, to some extent, be able to grow where you're planted and get strong enough so that you can then uproot yourself and put yourself in different contexts where you can continue to grow and scale, right? So companies all the time, sometimes like companies get into trouble, especially early stage companies that are at that, that hit that growth stage. They've got their, right. They've got their product market fit. They start to have a couple of core customers. Um, and now they're really trying to grow and scale. And this is one of the most dangerous points for a company to be in, especially an early stage company, because they are simultaneously trying to maintain their bread and butter, like what they were good at in early stages, but now they've uprooted themselves and are trying to grow and scale with either new product lines or new SKUs or new um, territories and cities. Um, and it has to be right. So the, like I, I in a, an example of this is like, think about, if you think about sort of, um, a mom and pop restaurant even right like a restaurant that was a small restaurant and for whatever reason like you discovered it right you discovered this restaurant and it's an italian restaurant and, like it's such an amazing restaurant they have the best bread and the best like olive oil and pesto dip and so even though they've got all of these other dishes like these italian dishes you keep going back because they for some reason have this amazing bread and pesto dip um, and so the, a lot of people start discovering this restaurant, they start going to it and the restaurant's like, wow, like we should expand. We should expand to different cities. We should expand our menu of offering. We should start expanding. And what happens, they start expanding their menu. They start expanding their geographic footprint and the quality of their bread and their pesto starts to decline. Right. And so then they start losing out on those early kind of customers, the ones who passionately loved and needed, wanted their, their bread. And companies face this all the time. They lose sight of like, who are the people who loved and passionately needed your product or service in the early days? And what was it about that? 
because that's what's going to allow you to then continue to grow and scale if you keep going back to that. And, and the company, whether it's a restaurant or, you know, an entertainment company or, um, you know, a retail experience, they, they might not know, they might not even know that people are coming for the bread and the olive oil and the pesto, right? And I think that's something that's really, um, you know, there's, there's so much noise in our everyday life. Like they're not, there's not a, they don't have a bread analytics engine, that, you know, <laughs> like sees yeah. how people respond to the bread specifically. And so I think it, it is interesting that there is this real, um, often people don't know why things don't work and, and, and they, they don't know why things work and they don't know why things don't work. And so I think there's this, I mean, actually, I'm curious because right now we're obviously going through the biggest disruption that the modern world has ever seen, um, kind of at this scale. And so there are lots of businesses that were doing A and, and they can't do A anymore, yeah. but they might still be around as a business. I mean, this just to me strikes like it's literally the title of your book, like how how can a business owner right now think about a way to kind of yeah. pivot amidst this, this uncertainty? Yeah. I think that what happens is, you know, the, like the title of my book is turning adverse, like the subtitle, right? It's edge turning adversity into advantage. And I think what happens is that like a lot of times this advantage piece, right? Like, we 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 are right now in a situation where everyone's sort of saying like we're in a diversity so turn this into an opportunity and i think therein lies the problem when we see this as needing opportunity because it's actually impacting companies in very very different ways right. it's impacting the founders and the presidents and the people within companies in really different ways some people it's professionally some people it's emotionally some people it's financially some people it's physically sometimes it's a mix of all those sort of things yeah and so there's really this continuum where there is like there are some companies who are facing really sort of egregious and very like poignant things. And what they just need to do is weather the storm. They just need to be able to hunker down, bunker down and weather the storm. And so sort of saying like, you should be turning adversity into an opportunity is a really difficult thing to kind of, to, to kind of swallow when they're like, how do we do that? So that's really around like staying nimble and going back to the, your, your basics and figuring out like, how do we weather this storm? How do we support the, our customers, our existing customers, the ones that are staying with us in authentic and viable ways. And that goes from everything from those people to the people that are like, wow, this really is an opportunity. And so how do we think about this holistically, right? We think about this holistically when we don't think about it in terms of opportunities or even advantage, but we think about this in terms of like inefficiencies. Where are the inefficiencies? Either inefficiencies for us in our own business and how we need to weather this or inefficiencies for others where there's something that's not sort of, uh, that, we're not, that, that we're not addressing yet. Because what happens is, and I think, you know, you and I talked about this or someone, somehow we, we like, somebody once said, somebody said like in one of the, the mutual conference sphere, like when a disaster or like some sort of chaotic crisis like this happens, what do people do? They look at what everyone else is doing. Right. right. And when you look at it, what everyone else is doing, what happens is that that leads to things like hoarding of toilet paper, everyone, totally. everyone baking banana bread. And for companies, everyone trying to do the same things 
like trying to take your services to a delivery model or trying to, um, you know, go. And so, but, but there's, but there's so many different ways that this can, this can, this can work for individual companies. And so kind of going back to this, like when you go back to your, your basic goods, the basic things that you started with, that allows you to then see and act upon inefficiencies that may be tangential to what you were doing that you maybe didn't notice. And that's when you can start to do things like, okay, well, the solution is now that we need to engage with a lot more cooperative behaviors with people who ordinarily would have been competitors or okay now the inefficiencies are that we don't need to people don't care as much about beta we don't need to now go to beta first we can go directly to some sort of solution or it's like now we need to change our narrative like there's different ways that you can address this cooperatively changing your own narrative being able to accelerate this de decelerating this and trying to so that's what you're able to do when you take yourself out of this mindset of like adversity has to be an opportunity because it doesn't always have to be an opportunity sometimes it's just about what are the inefficiencies and handling those um, in a stepwise fashion it's interesting that you talk about inefficiencies because I, I, when I think about our current moment, I think uh, an overemphasis on efficiency is part of what got us here. Well, you also so, write a lot about inefficiency, so the definition of inefficiency is a lot more is a lot deeper and in more depth because you've thought about these sort of um, things. But inefficiencies, to most most of us who are sort of thinking about, is just something that's not working well. And it, and it can be things that were existing and not working well, or it can be things that are newly not working well. But, I, I, but, I, but I, I mean, I'm curious where you're going with this, because it sounds like you're thinking that we're doing more of the, the, the tackling the efficiencies part. I think it, I think it remains to be seen how, how things evolve next. But I think if you look at, um, so many of the networks that have been present in our world, uh, they have been optimized for, one way to put it is they've been optimized for a very narrow set of parameters. Uh -huh. So if you think about a company or, or an organization optimizing its supply chain, um, like here in Seattle, I wrote an article, an HBR about resilience with two docs uh, last month. Um, and we'll include that in the show notes, I guess is a thing. Yeah, because <laughs> um, welcome to the 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 early stages of a, of a venture, <laughs> listeners. Um, so, and one of the things that was really interesting is there are there are a couple of different Seattle hospital systems, and they operate in different ways, and they have different um, you, you know values and principles. And one of the things that's interesting is the the system that operates in the most just-in-time manner possible in terms of just-in-time supply, you know, being a very lean organization, was the one that was least resilient when this hit, right? Because if you have, you know, two weeks of masks on hand and all of a sudden there's a surge and those get used in three yeah. days, that's very different. It's a very different buffer and in, in you're much more tightly coupled in the language that, that I would think about it in than you are if you're a hospital that was, you know, inefficiently, quote unquote, had three months worth of masks on hand. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I, I think one of the things we see is that 
there are loads of factors that lead to this. But one of the things I think is really interesting is as a society, as a country, how have we organized things to be efficient at the expense of flexibility and, and resilience? Mm -hmm. um, and we don't even really know what those parameters for flexibility look like. So totally. Yeah. Or, or they've changed or they've changed over time and we're optimizing based on an outdated mode or an outdated conception of what flexibility should should look like um right so i mean we've we've prepared a lot but this is sort of the you know like we started by, by talking a lot about um like uncertainty and 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 uncertainty also like this is really that unknowability piece of right. uncertainty um because you know you can contractually build things in when you like you can sort of plan for all different states of the world either contractually or in your company through planning and and contingencies but it's these unknowabilities that really change um how how, how things are done and and so again like this is where intuition and gut feel comes in because it's right you can look at all of the different states of the world and have an intuition about that but until you actually are able to import export that to a situation where everything has changed all of the you're you're changing multiple parameters at once um that takes a very different type of planning a different type of mindset different mental models different schemas different prototypes all those kind of things yes excellent use of schemas by the way <laughs> um, well, different ways of, of kind of thinking about the world and, and organizing information. And I think that's one, somebody made the observation, I think it was actually Lavin, actually. He meant it in a different way, but um, I'll just, just kind of steal his words, which is right now every company is a startup. And it's not because necessarily that the market size is going to be different. It's not because there's going to be necessarily a big contraction. I think, as you said, different industries are going to respond in, in very different ways. But every company is a startup in the sense that the um, the fundamental unknowability is yeah. much bigger. And, and this is where small companies have an advantage, actually. Yes, talk like, about that. Yeah, because what people don't realize is that small companies have had to be nimble. Like the, they've always had to be nimble. They've had to be nimble in terms of dealing with all of the sort of day-to-day -day things as well as their planning. And so small companies actually have an opportunity because the, the cost of actually changing and doing some slightly, something slightly tangential and then coming back to it is actually lower than for a large organization who needs to make that small. That switching cost right. is actually small. And so, so that's why small companies should be thinking tangentially as much as they can. Um, because and large companies are actually the ones who are thinking tangentially like where can we take this and and what are the sort of close things? but large companies actually should be the ones being much more disruptive right now and they're not able to because they've never been able well, not never but it's it's been it's um, rare it's rare that they think really disruptively they they, they don't have the the systems in place to do so and so it's it's sort of counterintuitive because small companies i see a lot of small companies right now trying to make radical shifts they're like okay this isn't working so we're going to do something completely different but it's actually if it, it, it's actually in term it's actually safer in some ways for them to just do something pretty similar so you know um 
now like bakeries again sorry i'm on i, I must be hungry because i'm thinking of all these like, restaurant <laughs> analogies but like bakeries right now are like we can't sell our baked goods but everyone's at home baking and so we're basically now just going to not bake it, but we're going to take all of those ingredients and put them in packages together and like ship them to everybody. That's very tangential, right? right. Whereas like, whereas like Disney is like, what are we supposed to do? Like what's close to making, like what's close to theme parks? What's close to movies? What's close to, there is nothing. There's nothing. Disney should now be like, okay, for the time being, we're going to do something completely different. We're going to like now be in the business of, you know, selling llamas that make guest appearances on Zoom, right? Like they could be doing lots of they, yes. they need to be thinking completely differently because right now no one's going to theaters and watching movies. No one is, no one is going to be going to theme parks. So like, how do they think completely like disruptively out of the box? Okay. Well, like let's have all of our Mickey's and Minnie's and Elsa's and all of this sort of thing, like zoom bomb people like, and that's going to keep our brand strong because our brand is worth so much. Like, that's the way they should be thinking. I Not love it. Like, That's awesome. Yeah. So, and then small companies, again, it's the opposite. Yeah. So the, the word you use, it's come up a couple of times and you used it, um, which I, lo I love and I think is a great way to frame some of this is looking at things that are accelerating. So um, a future podcast guest is a guy who runs a company that is in the event and entertainment space. So they build experiences for guests, you know, sometimes in, in the theme park context, sometimes in, you know, hotel and, and hospitality. But one of the things that, that is um, just really interesting is that all of these trends that were already in place around, for example, you know, big commercial spaces like malls closing, um, now is probably going to be accelerated. And you're going to see a shift in the way that the public consumes entertainment. And so you've got these factors coming in that if you have, just like you're saying, if you have you know billions of dollars worth of fixed real estate, it's a lot harder for you to be nimble uh, and, and change that. Whereas if you're a design firm, you can think and you can pivot. And it's gonna be hard, right? Because you also, I mean, Disney has, you know, like many other big companies, just gobs of cash sitting around. And so they can weather things for, they have a bigger buffer. But I think that accelerating issue or that accelerating component of it is, is really pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think the accelerating piece is interesting also because going into this, like this was such an exogenous shock in the sense that like we didn't really expect it and it was pretty sudden, right? So leading up to this, there was all of this momentum, like people had momentum in everything. Like even if you were sort of in a place in your life where you weren't sure what was happening, there was momentum because there was you know, you had, you were trying to figure out certain routines and you were trying to get, make progress on certain projects or you were getting into a rhythm or it was the middle of the semester and students were into the semester. And what, what happens is like, I mean, with all of this momentum, it's like, we now have this big backlash, right? And so there's this big yeah. backlash because we, it was sudden and it was something we weren't expecting and we went, we couldn't plan for it. And so, um, 
Now, and then after that backlash, it's sort of, we're now all expecting ourselves to sort of pick up and continue that momentum in different ways. But this is like completely different. This is completely different, right? It is like, I, I, you know, there's a startup I was talking to not too long ago who said, we, we lost 13 million in funding. Like we were supposed, we had 13 million in promised funding. Um, and pretty much overnight that disappeared. And, you know, we also had 50,000 in revenue that was coming that month. And, I, and they said, so we're trying to figure out now, like, what can we, what can we do to try and get revenue? Can we, and I told her, I, I said to her, I'm like, you can't think like, it can't be like, how can we get 50,000 in revenue this month? Because if you think about that, like if you're, if you're trying to replicate, you're not going to get that 50,000. You need to be thinking completely different. You're, it's a constraint. Um, yes. An example yes. of, yeah, it's a constraint to you. And the example I, I sort of gave her was, I do this ex exercise with my students, which is called the, it, they, it, it's, it's called the $5 exercise, but I think it's done at Stanford and other universities as well, where in you, you give your, your students, you put them into teams and you give them each an envelope with, you know, $20 or $5 or whatever, whatever amount you, you want to give them. And their assignment is to start a company, start a, some sort of a venture. Um, and you give them two weeks, a month, however long you want. And at the end of that, they have to report back how much they made in revenue, profit, um, and give a presentation on it. And the, um, the, the fascinating thing about this is that most of the companies come back with some sort of a, a profit, um, but the companies that do the best are the ones that never open the envelope or never use the five or $20. And what I mean by this is those who open the envelope and take that $5 or $20, they, they think, okay, what can I buy? What can I buy with this $20? So they buy like ingredients for, to do a bake sale or they buy car wash, like soaps and sponges and do a car wash. Or they, they're thinking in terms of what can $20 get us? The companies that make the most are the ones that never either even use it. So they, for example, one team, each of them recorded a 30 second commercial of some skill that they could do. And then they sold tickets to an auditor in an auditorium or sold tickets to a thing where you could learn all of these different skills. And they just sent these, these videos to everyone. Another one did, another team did this thing called like the running dinner where like they said, okay, well, like, here's the problem. No one likes to network, but you all want to network. And so you need to pick, um, you're going to cook. Do you want to cook appetizer, main or dessert? And 10 people are going to come to your place and then you're going to rotate. So you cook appetizers, 10 people come, then you don't have to cook anything else. You go to somebody else's place for the main course. Then you go somewhere else for the dessert. And then at the end, we send a text to everyone and we all meet up in a, in a bar together. And so everyone paid like, like an entrance fee to this. They didn't have to cook anything or serve anything. All they had to do was text everyone, here's the address of the next place you're going to. You know, so these, these, these ideas, the ones that make the most money are the ones that are not constrained. They're not thinking, I need to make, I need to use $20. Or the, you know, or nowadays I need to be making 50,000 because that's what I made last time, last month. Right, it's such a, um you know the the uh, the famous sense making paper about the man gulch firefighter. Yes, yes, yeah. So, um, Carl, like, yes, who has this amazing paper about this um, 
uh, wildfire that changes directions and uh, surprises the, this, this line of firefighters who are, are fighting it. And um, only one of them realizes the kind of magnitude of this change, that this isn't, this is now a different beast. This is not a forest fighter that they can fight with traditional means. And um, most of the people in his unit run and, and die. And he stops and drops his tools and um, digs a little, like does something totally kind of out of protocol, digs a little like kind of fire burn for himself to kind of hide in. And he's the only one that survives. And I, I think about this pretty often that in, in a big crisis, when things have changed a lot, the, the thing that lets us survive is to totally change our mindsets, to drop all of our, to realize that our, our prior is wrong and to drop that as much as possible. And I think that's exactly, it's a, but it's a struggle, right? And that's exactly what you're, yeah, what you're talking about. Yeah, and part of the struggle is realizing, like, and, and so there's like a bunch of things there. Like part of it is realizing, number one, that we're such social creatures. And so we're, we're we, 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 like doing that is really, anti, it's like the antithesis of what our whole lives we've been We've been What's sort of usually trained. an adaptive survival mechanism. Yes. Yeah, we've been trained to like want people to agree with us and say yes to us and like us. And and all of that has to be thrown in the face of this in order to um, get out of sort of that social, that social, that, that social mindset. Um, and then the second piece of this is that what we what we don't always acknowledge is that part of doing that is also intuition like intuition is yes. very complex it's this very complex construct and and so intuition is not about just like running where everyone else is running into part of our intuition is like when do we follow and when do we not and so it's so important to really be able to as individuals like determine have a have a yardstick for ourselves of what that looks like um and, and and that's something that's 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 really hard to do and again it's hard to do these these two things feed each other in turn it's hard to do because we are so trained to again like want people to like us and say yes to us and agree with us and so everything that we've done like all of our skills in terms of influence and persuasion and all of these have been honed or we've developed those muscles not the muscles to deal with the when do i dig a hole and stay there by myself and this coronavirus right, right now is really accentuating that it's really accentuating like it's so easy to hoard toilet paper and all be wanting to bake and all be talking about how we can make this into an opportunity and how do we deal with our kids being at home and and being on zoom and not finding what's that equivalent for us um, what's that digging of the hole for us? It's awesome. Yes, I love it. Um, so your book, Edge, um, it came out in January, so it's sort of very, very fresh. Um, where can yeah, people it find out, of, out? It came out the end of January, just as the coronavirus was starting to ramp up. So that's been part of part of my fun. <laughs> right, totally. <laughs> um, so where can people find out more about you, your research, the book? 
Yeah, so the my website is laurahuang.net. So lots of um, practical tips. You can take a quiz to figure out how you how well positioned are you to develop your own edge. There's also a um, free companion guide to the book, so you can download that on my website as well. And then I'm on social, you know, um, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook. Um, my handle is Laura Huang. LA. So Laura Huang LA for almost all of my social. Cool. We'll put, we'll put links in the show notes. Thanks so much. So nice chatting with you, Chris. Oh, Lord, this was so fun. <laughs> um, yeah, I love your perspective. I'm a huge fan of, of your stuff and your research. Ditto. Um, and I love the way your mind works. I mean, I love how like I say something and I can already see the gears turning and you're like, I think like I, I almost can see like the areas where I say something and it's like, you are doing this like, okay, I agree with that 60% and this 40%, I think this and how it applies to something else. So um, I'm looking forward to this podcast and, and your future ones too, because I think it's going to be just so fun to kind of see how like you interact with your guests and where you go with it. So good luck with this. Thank you. It was really fun to talk. You're welcome. Good luck and good luck with everything. Thank you. Awesome. Okay. All talk right, to, talk you to you soon. Bye. All right. Bye. Thanks for listening. To stay in the loop about new episodes and to be eligible for my periodic book bundle giveaways, sign up for the Breakdown newsletter at chrisclearfield.com giveaway. So what's this giveaway? Every few months, I bundle together three or four influential books, often written or recommended by guests from the show, and I give them away to a few lucky listeners. I'll include a signed copy of Meltdown, and because I'm friends with many of my fellow authors, I try to get their books signed as well, so you definitely don't want to miss out on that. Go to chrisclearfield.com slash giveaway to get on the list. Finally, join your fellow listeners. Subscribe to the show and share it with your friends. And if you love the show, give us a five-star rating in your favorite podcast app. Even one extra review helps us get an edge on the algorithm so more people can find us. And before we roll the credits, remember, if you're a business owner ready to transform your business and your life, find out more about my approach to coaching and sign up for a free intro session at chrisclearfield.com slash make the leap. That's all one word, make the leap. The Breakdown with Chris Clearfield is a team effort. The inimitable Rain Avant is our assistant producer and makes everything run smoothly. Gabe Turner and Claire Skinner help make the amazing content here and on my newsletter available at chrisclearfield.com slash the breakdown. Laura Stack is our editor and our theme was composed by the creative team at Spiky Blimp. Thanks so much for listening and be well until our next breakdown.